Dan Quayle was elected to represent Indiana in Congress in 1976 and in the Senate in 1980. In 1988, he ran as George H.W. Bush's running mate and served as vice president until 1993. Since 1999, he has been chairman of Global Investments at the private equity firm Cerberus Capital Management. Today, he will discuss the bipartisanship on which he relied while in office, his foreign policy concerns in a post-COVID world, and the alienation in politics today. Let's listen in. It's really great to, to have uh, have Vice President Dan Quayle with us today. Um, he, he's usually associated with Indiana, uh, but his life has alternated between Indiana and Arizona. Born in Indiana, raised in Arizona, last part of high school, college, and law school in Indiana, and now back in Arizona, where, where he's been the the international operations head of the investment firm Cerberus for the last 20 years. Uh, he was elected to Congress in 1976 at age 29 from a district around Fort Wayne in uh, Northeast uh, Indiana, and then to the Senate uh, at age 33. He became vice president under uh, George H.W. Bush in 1989. He's widely considered to be one of the uh, of the most active vice presidents in, in history, especially for his interest and involvement in foreign policy. He was regarded as a conservative uh, by 1990s standards, but he probably probably would be a moderate uh, judge by by today's <laughs> standards. Um, as someone, <laughs> you're 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 uh, laughing at that. As someone who during his time in uh, D.C worked across the aisle to to achieve results uh he is supportive of no labels objectives i think he might well be a member of the problem solvers caucus if he were still in uh, in congress today a, a great guy uh, a decent golfer and a good friend dan well thank thanks jim <clears throat> the way i uh understand the format is that i just talked for five to seven minutes, and then we get into the Q&A uh, part of it, which uh, I look I look forward to. Jim was reminding me some of the things that I did when I was young. I want everybody on the call to know that I fully recovered from being young, that I'm no longer that uh, case anymore. Uh, what I thought I'd do, first of all, no labels. I'm uh, somewhat familiar with it, and I really applaud the idea of the bipartisan approach. Because if you really want to get things done on a substantive basis and to have permanent results as far as getting anything permanent in the country done, you have to do it on a bipartisan basis. Um, during our administration, <clears throat> four years, unfortunately only four years, uh, we had a Democrat Congress. We had to deal with uh, George Mitchell in the Senate and Tom Foley in the House, both good people, but you know, very you know, strong Democrats. But we got a lot of things accomplished on, you know, we did the budget, uh, we did the comprehensive environmental legislation, the clean air legislation, Americans for Disabilities. Um, we got uh, approval to go after Noriega. We got uh, approval to deal with Saddam Hussein, all on a bipartisan basis. Um, and the Clinton administration was, was bipartisan. Uh, it seemed to break down a little bit uh, after uh, 2000. And, and to you know, the Obama administration, you know, very much less bipartisan, and the Trump administration even more so. So we do have a history of that. So thanks to no labels, I hope you can get back in there and try to 
you know, whether it's through the problem solvers group or just getting good, genuine bipartisanship, it's, uh, it's important. Let me just uh, say a couple things of the category of what's on your mind, what, what, uh, what really concerns you uh, today. And I'll take one issue in the area of foreign policy and uh, one issue in domestic policy, and then we'll open up for, uh, for questions. In foreign policy, where obviously I spent a great deal of time when I was vice president, also on the Senate Armed Services Committee for eight years and the House Foreign Affairs Committee for two of the four years I served there. When you look at the world today, <clears throat> it's, it's really transformed and you sort of think of it in periods. You know, from 1945 to 1991, we had the, the Cold War essentially with the United States versus the Soviet Union. And then from <clears throat> 91, probably until, you know, just recently, the, the COVID experience, uh, it was really the USA, you know, United States exceptionalism. And now after COVID, it's going to be really United States and China. Uh, it's a big change. And, and China is going to be far more competitive, in my view, than the, than the Soviet Union was. But clearly, as we look at <clears throat> the world after COVID, and I think this is going to be a real benchmark, like the fall of the Berlin Wall in 91, like the ending of World War II in 45, uh, it's going to be a, a real historic milestone. Clearly, we're going to have less uh, globalism. I think uh, our, our administration probably coined the term New World Order, if you will, after the Soviet Union uh, collapsed and the Berlin Wall came down. Um, the new world order, you know, was the epitomized globalism and the interaction and the connection with countries and nation states around the world. Did a lot of good things, but it left a lot of people behind. And uh, as we've seen, the, the rise of nationalism, which uh, can be both good and bad. Uh, the rise of nationalism started with Brexit, uh, continued with Trump. And now, as you look at the, uh, the situation today, you know, the, the rise of nationalism is quite robust. Uh, all the BRIC countries, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, all have very strong nationalistic leaders. Uh, this doesn't say that, that you know, that, that it's wrong. I'm just saying that the nationalism is, is clearly on the, on the rise. And as you look at the, the situation with the United States versus China, a lot of people ask me, and I'd like to, you know, just put it right out there front and center, are we in a new Cold War? Uh, and my answer, as I said, I certainly hope not, uh, because that's not going to be helpful to the United States, and it's not going to be helpful to, to China. It's not going to be helpful to the, to world to global stability. But there is a strong bipartisan consensus, if you want to say that, on Capitol Hill and in the political system of being, quote, unquote, anti-China. I don't like that terminology. I, I, you know, I, I have a daughter-in-law that was born and raised in Shanghai. My first two grandchildren were born in Hong Kong, so I have a you know a personal connection with China, and I hope I don't have too rosy-colored viewpoint of that uh, because I think we do have a lot of problems uh, with with China, and we'll continue to. But right now, the polls show 60%, 60% of the American people have an unfavorable view of China. Um, that, you know, that's not necessarily good in, in my viewpoint. Now, having said that, China is going to be a very serious competitor 
and Xi Jinping and the Communist Party are going to prove to be an extreme challenge to the United States and our way of life. I mean, you look to the uh, the western part of China, what they're doing with the concentration camps and the Uyghurs and the imprisonment of you know a million Muslims there. Uh, you look at the crackdown they have now going on in, in, in Hong Kong. They just passed a new security law where the, uh, the mainland China can now have security forces uh, in, in Hong Kong, and they're going to start arresting more and more uh, people there. Many people that I know in Hong Kong, they're, they're unfortunately, they're leaving. You can see what Great Britain's done. The United States might want to think about doing the same thing as, you know, those that want to immigrate from Hong Kong, we might want to get them into this country. I think Great Britain's going to take in a million new people from Hong Kong, something like that, I read. But, uh, but they're leaving. And right after Hong Kong, you got Taiwan. That's the real flashpoint. You got 23 million Taiwanese. They refer to themselves as Taiwanese and not Chinese, even though they speak Mandarin. Uh, most of them now were born in Taiwan. They weren't born on the mainland. And it's a vibrant democracy. They have a legitimate two-party system. And at some point, uh, you saw just the other day where the, one of the generals in the People's Liberation Army had a very strong statement against Taiwan. They've done this in the past toward Taiwan, but not at this high level. Uh, so they're ratcheting this up and, you know, we'll have to wait and see. Um, that's why we need to really have good alliances with Japan, with South Korea, with Australia, Vietnam, India, and others, uh, because this, this is coming right after Hong Kong. So, you know, what really concerns me on the, the foreign policy, uh, in the foreign policy arena is not only how we handle China, we can get into more, more of that if you, if you want to. But, you know, the world, it's, it's more nationalistic, it's less, you know, globalism is, is receding. And there'll be more protectionism uh, out of all this because uh, all the countries, United States, Germany, others saw the vulnerability of our supply chains, particularly with medical supplies, that uh, the interruption of these supplies chains and being vulnerable when the pandemic uh, occurred. Uh, this is very troubling. And what do you do? You try to have it more local. You have to try to be it closer at home. Uh, that means more protectionism. It also means higher prices uh, for the consumer. I mean, just that's the way it uh, that's the way it works. So if you have the rise of, of of nationalism, the increase of protectionism, that's not necessarily you know a good ingredient uh, good ingredients for you know, world world stability and 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 global and global security. Um, but you know, will we will hopefully manage it well we'll see what happens in the in the election but when as i said when 60 percent of the american people have a negative viewpoint of one country uh and a bipartisan consensus that means things have really changed quite uh, dramatically when it comes to comes to china so the second thing and then that you look at is you know here at home look you know i've been in Elective politics started in 1976, uh, ended in 1992. But I've never seen, you know, I'm sure you heard other people say, it, I've never seen anything quite like this. Uh, and I'm not, you know, I don't have any great answers on how we get it back, uh, except we've got to elect different, you know, better people, people that want to get things done rather than just, you know, throw the, 
you know, throw the bombs every day. I, you know, you can, there's a lot of blame to go around. You can say it's social media, it's the media, it's the politicians, it's the, you know, the business community. You know, you just go down the list. It's everybody's fault and everybody's in it. Uh, but I've never seen the dysfunction. I've never seen the alienation uh, like we see today. And that's, that's, that's very, uh, that's, that's extraordinarily troubling. Um, there was a very interesting Rasmussen poll, Rasmussen poll, I think it was this, no, it wasn't this week, last week, where 40%, think of this, 40% think that America has a reasonable chance to have a civil war in the next five years. 40%. That's a staggering number. I'm clearly not in that camp. I doubt if anybody on this call is in that camp. But I do think it shows the, the division. It shows the alienation. And so, you know, what do you do about it? I mean, you got you got executive branch that they just, you know, rule whether it's this administration or the previous administration is pretty good at it by executive order. Um, you've got a Congress that doesn't do very much at all because of the split there. I went to Congress and got elected in 1976, and there was a book that I read. It was called the Imperial Congress, and that's where Congress had all the power. Uh, and those are the days of Robert Byrd and Tip O'Neill, where they really controlled the first strings. And even in our administration, we were because we had a Democrat Congress, but we were very, very sensitive to what the Congress was going to do. Much less so now, uh, whether it's the this administration, previous administrations, they just don't pay that much attention to Congress because it has become dysfunctional. And now you have a Supreme Court. Where you know they they're the ones that are going to be the the manager of all the uh, the social issues. Um, they'll be managing the the you know issues whether it's abortion or transgender, or religious liberty, and all these things, which I think the American people are fine with. Um, you know because Congress doesn't have an answer to it, and American people are divided on. It, so it's going to be the Supreme Court. So it's a different kind of government that we have today. You know, a very strong executive that does does a lot of things. Very, you know, strong uh, Supreme Court that's a check on the president and is the manager of some of these sensitive social issues. And then a Congress that is just sort of, you know, just there. Um, a big change from when I first went to went to Congress. So as always, you know, the answer is in leadership. We need leadership at the political level. We need leadership at the business level. We need leadership. In the media, uh, we need leadership in the, with uh, unions, uh, community organizations, not for profits. We need it everywhere because leadership is is lacking. So, you know, this is a you know, concern that you know I talk to my kids about, and now my grandkids are getting a little bit older. It's a it's a different country. Am I pessimistic? No, I'm never pessimistic. I'll always be optimistic about us, our country, but it's tough uh, in these times, and particularly the the dysfunction and, and just how split we are. I've never seen it before. So on that happy note, uh, why don't we go to your questions? Because I could go on for a long time about these issues. Mr. Vice President, it's good to <coughs> see you. I'm Andrew Tisch from New York, I'm one of the co-founders of No Labels. Uh, so you're a member of one of the most exclusive clubs in the world. The presumed nominee from the Democratic Party is going to be a fellow member of that same club. If he were to ask you for your advice, what qualities would you look for, would you advise him to look for in the selection of a vice presidential candidate 
running mate. Yeah, I've I've uh, had the pleasure of knowing Joe Biden for uh, gosh forty years now. Um, he's a good, honest, decent person. Um, you know, it's uh, I don't I don't agree with him on on everything. I agree with him on some things. I'm not exactly sure where he's going to come out on some of these issues, which we can talk about. As vice for the uh, vice president, he's you know he says he's going to put a, you know pick a woman. Um, so that takes care of half the people that he might've, uh, thought about. Um, and now it looks like the, you know, a huge majority of, of Democrats, uh, want him to pick a, a woman of color. So that sort of narrows the field. I'd say there's probably four or five people that would, you know, fit that category. Um, and that Camel Harris is probably the leading contender because with the, uh, with with Biden's age, he'll I think he's seventy eight. Uh, he hinted that he might only serve one term if elected. Uh, he'll change his mind on that unless he does have health issues, which I don't know uh, anything about. Um, he'll run for a second term, in my view, if he's elected to one. Um, but there seems to be a, a lot of attention on on who he's going to uh, to appoint uh, because of his because of his age. And they're going to say, well, that person has to be qualified to be president on day one. I'm not sure you're going to find somebody that's going to be qualified to be president on day one, with the exception of Hillary Clinton. Uh, she clearly has the experience and, and everything that day one she'd be uh, fully qualified. Uh, but whoever he picks can grow into the job very quickly. Um, and, you know, the, 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 the two requirements that you have. Uh, of being of being the vice president, selected vice president. One, that person has to be qualified to be president. Uh, they got to have the credentials. They have to have the capability to be president of the United States. That's number one. There's no doubt about that. Number two is, in my view, loyalty. And you you really need to be loyal to the the president's agenda. The, one of the toughest things you have as being vice president is to realize that you're not the president because you're with him every day. Um, in my case, I agreed with him most of the time. There were a few disagreements, but it was always his agenda. I would have prioritized things maybe a little differently, but it's his agenda. Uh, for me, it was very easy to be loyal uh, to President Bush. And I think Joe Biden was very loyal to uh, Barack Obama as well. So that loyalty is, is very important. So that comes down to the personal chemistry. And I don't know how well, I think he knows Kamala probably from the Senate. He, I mean, he wasn't there when she was there, but he probably knows her. Uh, the other ones, I don't know how well he knows them. And it's a decision of one person. So I would say, look, you know, you've you got to be comfortable um, with who you select. Uh, I think Amy Klobuchar was probably, you know, high up there until the Minneapolis situation uh, erupted. Um, so, you know, he's got to pick someone that appears to be qualified to be president and somebody that I think that he'll want to have that loyalty factor as well. Um, our next question is from, uh, from Fred Zeidman. Andrew really asked sort of the same question I had, to, I, I intended to ask, how do you see during the camp, this campaign, the, uh, role of the vice presidential candidate, uh, changing from the days that you were there and from some of the previous presidential races, given the issues that uh, you had just addressed, Dan? 
<clears throat> I, I think initially there'll be uh, a lot of focus uh, on who Biden uh, picks, uh, and that will last, uh, be very intense up until uh, Biden gives his uh, acceptance speech at the uh, the Democratic convention, and then it will turn back to to Joe Biden. Um, you know, people they they vote for the top of the ticket, and I know there's a lot of discussion uh, about well, in this particular case with Joe Biden, it makes a, a bigger it makes a bigger difference. Um, I don't think he you know I think he wants to pick the best person, but if they're really saying that it makes a huge difference in more than ever before, that sort of diminishes the top of the ticket. Uh, I'd like to think that, you know, maybe they vote for the bottom of the ticket. I was, I was on that ticket at the bottom. They vote for the top of the ticket. They vote for the president. And therefore, there's a lot of interest right now. There'll be a lot of interest because uh, it's probably going to be a, a woman of color. So that will be historic. <clears throat> I think what you had two other <clears throat> women contenders with Ferraro and, and Sarah Palin. Um, so, you know, there's going to be a, there's going to be a lot of interest, but that will dissipate after, after the convention. And it will get back to, I think, a much a more normal situation. And that will be looking at what Joe Biden has to say, what he's going to do for the country. And it will be a binary choice between Biden and Trump. It will not be a binary choice between Pence and whoever the, the Democrats put up. Paul, uh, Paul Murad. Mr. Vice President, uh, it's an honor to ask you a question. Paul Murad from Las Vegas, Nevada. With um, the comments that you mentioned about China and such a overwhelming, I guess, agreement among American citizens on China, China and its, its uh, impact uh, on the world and, and, and how we react to it now. Uh, what can we, what can be done specifically like by whether it's U.S. government, whether it's by CFAS, the um, or whether it's by any other agency uh, or department uh, that uh, can actually, you know, make some measurable changes to the Chinese ownership of some, you know, significant strategic companies and or strategic real estate uh, what can actually you think be done and what's the best course of action from your perspective, your vantage point on actually making some meaningful improvement to our independence and not relying on China for supply chain and, and other things that uh, you know, became so clear during the pandemic? Yes, that's, that's a very complicated question. Um, let, me, let me try to answer it like this. Um, I think, you know, you have Scipius and other agencies that can block deals um, with with uh, with China that's part of it but I think there has to be a recognition of what's really what's really going on <clears throat> and that recognition is that we have a huge and this this is going to be a real test we have a huge debate raging uh, in Washington and quite frankly around the world on 5g right? Is Huawei really going to be, you know, the biggest uh, provider by a, a large factor, or are we going to, you know, see some others uh, participate in that? You know, there's been some discussion in the uh, in the uh, Congress that maybe that uh, the United States should invest in a couple of tech companies like that are in the 5G area, like Ericsson and Nokia. 
um, to really be a stop to Huawei or not a stop, but be a competitor. So I think the real foremost thing is to, re- is to deal with this 5G uh, issue. And it's a big one. But we also have to realize that, look, China is, it's not an emerging power. It is a real power. Uh, are they going to try to use espionage in sort of the old fashioned way? Uh, of course they are. I mean, the, the Russians did it and, you know, yeah. it's, it's <laughs> espionage is, it's always here. You just got to be on the lookout and try to curtail it and catch people if you, if you can. But they, they're a little more sophisticated than that. They, they set up a lot of these research centers and they send researchers over here to get to with our technology companies and get into the universities and all that. And we have to be clear, clear eyed on this, on what their objective is. It's not just to get more Chinese students over here. A lot of them are here to gather information. Um, and so you, you just have to have an understanding that, uh, that China is a competitor. Now, what we need to do is, particularly with our allies, you take the allies in the Pacific, like with J- Japan and South Korea and Australia, and, and India's emerging ally or a, a emerging strategic ally of ours because of the recent confrontation with China and India on the on the border of the Himalayas. And, you know, 20 Indian military folks evidently have been killed there. That's not insignificant. They've had border clashes before. So we really have got to look at our alliances just to try to not, not contain, but to manage the military rise of China, particularly in the South China Sea and the East China Sea, where they really are glo- gobbing, or, uh, gathering up land mass uh, quite, uh, quite rapidly. Uh, and then on the sort of to your question on the, the, the trade and things like that, we really have got to get with all of our allies, whether it's the G7 or whatever the case may be, and to, to get a concerted effort, a united front that China really needs to have play by the same rules that, that we do. The rules of the road have to be similar. Uh, we can't have these massive subsidations of all their state-owned enterprises and compete with us on a global basis. Um, but the problem is, is these international organizations are, are losing influence. The WTO doesn't even function anymore because we don't have the, you know, we haven't even appointed some of the people to the WTO. And, uh, you know, not that the WTO doesn't have its own fault, but, you know, they could be a, you know, a way to have this united front. So I think we've got to real just to be honest with ourselves, be open eyed, have a clear understanding of what the objectives of, of China and how they're going to go about achieving those objectives. And it's nothing really new. They're just a little bit more sophisticated. And I think that the first real test and the result of how we deal with 5G is going to be very, very important. Just a quick follow-up, uh, you know, FG, uh, 5G is important, but what about such industries that are like healthcare, pharmaceuticals, food, agriculture, utilities, infrastructure, uh, technology is one you mentioned, shipping and logistics, including U.S. ports. I, I have this list because I've been researching the subject, uh, as well as media um, and, uh, and press. I mean, the, the, the attempts by Chinese have been into all the sectors to acquire and to, to buy some strategic assets. Who can do this besides just the will of the people to, you know, to support it? But besides CFIUS, are there other agencies and other government entities, or is this something where perhaps we need to call and ask our leaders to form a, you know, a new bureau department or uh, an agency for looking into those things? 
Well, I think businesses are going to do this on their own self-interest. Um, the government can be, a, you know, facilitate to some extent, but you know, the businesses are going to do it because of you saw the disruption, the vulnerability on the supply chains with particularly medical things. You mentioned pharmaceuticals. I'll give you an example on that. Eli Lilly was a big constituency of mine when I was in in the Senate, and we used to have this section. I forget the name of the section in the tax code. I think it was three eighty four. But anyway, it gave tax preferences to pharmaceutical companies that were located in Puerto Rico. It was good for Puerto Rico and it was good for the uh, pharmaceutical companies. When I, was, when I was on the Senate Budget Committee, my dear friend Pete Domenici was always trying to get rid of this thing. And he was never successful. And, you know, I was one of many that you know fought for this thing. Uh, but then finally, during the Clinton administration, they got rid of it in the mid 90s. What would the pharmaceutical companies do? They went to China. Hmm. So anyway, they just, you know, this is a mistake that we made. And I think you're going to see business decisions being made to come back closer to the United States. I think if they ever get their act together, the big winner in this things could be Mexico. Uh, and maybe some of the countries in Central America, although they've got some huge problems. Because I think the I think people are going to want to locate closer to home because there's going to be less globalization. Um, and the tendency is not to be as vulnerable on some of these key sectors as you, as you mentioned. And so that means less trade, not more trade, and probably more protectionism. And some of these things, you know, might not be necessarily good for the United States or good for the world. Mm. Thank you. Okay, Mike, uh, Mike Precob, next question. Hi, uh, thank you. Um, and thank you, Mr. Vice President. Uh, I, my question, unfortunately, is off the current track, which I thought was a good one, goes back to your comments about, you know, society changes and so forth and, and the current climate. One thing that I think is, is a probable cause for it has to do with social media, which uh, I don't trust a bit, you know, due to bots and tweets and people following each other and acceleration of, um, you know, celebrities having more importance. But I, what I see is, uh, politicians, you know, members of the House and Senate and so forth, being somewhat, I guess I could use the word afraid of it, um, thinking that they need to have a good social image and that it takes them off course, that there's too much catering to that, even though it's an inefficient way to really measure uh, a true feeling of the American people, it seems to have that deleterious effect. And I wonder if you have a comment. Yes, social media, I, obviously, I didn't have that during my political career. Um, you know, when it, when it first came out, um, you know, I thought, okay, well, this is a good way to just exchange ideas, to connect, uh, and all that. But it's just really, it, it's exploded. Um, you think of an uh, elected member of uh, Congress in the House or, or the Senate. You know, they're, they're, the social media and all of their followers that they have, they basically can tell them how to vote on the day they're going in on vote on, on things. And you got to realize that we have, it's a representative democracy that we have. It's not a true democracy where everybody votes. That'd be anarchy. Um, the, the social media, there is a bipartisan agreement that they probably are going to have to be regulated to some extent. I'm not. I haven't looked at it that closely to figure out where I really come down, you know, what side I come down on that. 
Um, I do know that there's a huge debate now going on on, on censorship, on viewpoints. Um, Tom Cotton, I guess he, he, they called him up the other day and they had, he had something up there they didn't like and they threatened to take his whole account down and on Twitter. And then they backed down the next 10 minutes. But they got all these people looking at um, different viewpoints that they don't like. They want to you know, get into censorship. Well, that's going to be a huge debate, and I don't, even, you know, I don't know enough to intelligently debate that right now. I just know it's going on. Uh, so these social medias, it's not new, but you know how extensive it is. And the unfortunate thing is, I always thought that maybe the social media that might be helpful to countries like China uh, or Iran or some of these other places where they, oh, oh. Say okay, now they're going to get real information. We might see some real change. It's gone the other way. They've gotten total control. They've got total censorship. They've been able to crack down. They'd be able to follow you, you know, very much. And it's become much more difficult to express freedom with the social media and these authoritarian countries than originally thought. So it's a it's a huge problem. It's going to be one that would be <clears throat> debated, you know, this year. And the, the years to come, and the big the big political issue will be on on regulation. If you're going to regulate these um, social media platforms, my guess is that there'll eventually be some regulation. My my fear is not you know the regulation. Um, you know I think that may do some good, but it is uh, not a controllable form. Um, in other words, let's say that uh, Madonna publishes something and she gets 5,000 followers who retweet. You don't, there is no way to really gauge that as being a sensible method of motivating people or whether the people really agree with anything. Uh, you get too many people saying things because of followers and it, it's not a great reflection of things. And that's, that's part of the problem rather than, and uh, some kind of censorship. No. Uh, Next question. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. I, I said I don't disagree. Uh, Stephen Schlenker. Mr. Vice President, an absolute pleasure and honor to get to ask you this question. Uh, one could argue that the 1992 election was lost in part because President Bush took the hard decision to reverse his earlier stance and say that there would actually be taxes instead of his original uh proclamation of no new taxes. And ultimately, that proved to be the right decision. If you go out to the next president, many reasons for the balanced budget were because of the decisions that were made to actually raise taxes during uh, your term. Do you think that's caused subsequent presidents, particularly first-term presidents, to not take tough decisions that actually will take longer to implement? And if so, how do we get new presidential leaders to put country ahead of reelectability? Well, it wasn't helpful, uh, the tax decision. It was, it was a tough one. Uh, I know that the president, he agonized uh, over it, but he's, his bottom line was he said, look, I got to do what's best for the country. Uh, I'm not going to worry about my reelection. And he, you know, went ahead with the, what they call the San An or the Andrews Air Force Base compromise. Uh, and he went along with the, the tax increase, <clears throat> and it was not helpful. But I'm not sure that's what 
the reason he lost, I think this guy named Ross Perot got 19% of the vote, which, you know, was pretty devastating. And I think that's primarily the reason that, that we lost. But uh, your question is, is, is well taken, you know. The, the the thing is when you're when you're in the in the Oval Office and you're president, and this is why I said you really have got you need you need leadership. You need and every president is always eyeing re-election. There's no doubt about it. Um, I think uh, George H. W. Bush, number forty-one, affectionately known as. I mean, he he was steeped in public service. Um, he was a, a one of the more honorable, decent people I've ever met in my life. Um, and he would put country first. So I think, it, you know, as we look at these things, you got to, you know, elect people that are going to put country first. Uh, because, as I said, we desperately need leadership, you know, from all walks of life. Um, and, you know, some people, when they get in there, yeah, they're eyeing re-election. But in a case like that, you got to put, you know, put the country first, which, which he did. And he suffered at the polls. I'm not sure it was the reason that he lost, but it was certainly wasn't helpful. Okay, uh, Jared Carney, and again, uh, give your give your home if you would. Uh, Mr. Vice President, an honor to ask you the question. I'm calling you and talking to you from outside of San Luis Obispo in California. When you ran and when you were elected vice president, if I'm not mistaken, you were one of the youngest, if not the actual youngest, um, to serve. You've talked before now about social media on the call, but I wonder how much you think age is truly a factor in this coming election in particular, and, and whether having an aggregate age on the, in the ticket of almost 150 years old between both candidates is actually a good thing for the country, and whether a little, um, a little uh, injection of, um, so let's say, more youthful vigor wouldn't be a good thing for the country, and certainly a good signal to send to the country at this time. Um, you're from California. This may surprise you, but Richard Nixon was two years younger than I when he was elected vice president. He was only 39. Uh, look, what, what's uh, Reagan's famous line against Mondale that he wasn't going to hold his youth and inexperience against him when they <laughs> brought up Reagan's age? Uh, that was quite a memorable line, if uh, I recall. Um, you know, People are people are living longer. People are, uh, you know, healthier. Uh, I'm a little surprised that the Democrats didn't try to go down to the to the next generation. Um, but the two finalists were of you know the uh, of Joe Biden's generation, uh, and you know so see I'm trying to think Biden I don't think is in in the baby boom generation. The rest of us Clinton was Obama was Bush was I was. Gore was, but I don't think uh, Biden is. So we're actually, which is unusual, uh, if he's elected, we'll be going back a generation because Trump's a baby boomer uh, by one year, I think, <clears throat> like two years. So it's it's a, it's it's interesting, but you know that's those are that's the choice we have. So we got to deal with it. Okay, next, uh, Bob Zeidman. Hi, Vice President Quayle. It's uh, nice to talk to you. I hope you don't mind if I ask you. I have a lot of important questions I could ask, but I'm going to ask one that's not so important. But 
it's bothered me for, or I've been curious about it for a number of years. Uh, my wife and I are fans of Dancing with the Stars, and uh, <laughs> you were a supporter of Alfonso Ribeiro, and I just always wondered uh, where you uh, met him and what your, you know, how you became friends. Yeah, Alfonso and Angela are, are, are really actually friends. Um, I got to know him uh, through through golf. I played golf with him a few times, uh, and we've socialized uh, together. And it's a uh, it's interesting the dancing with the stars because a number of years ago they kept calling me to be on the dancing with the stars and I said oh maybe I could go out dancing with my stars dancing with the stars and my wife said there's no way you're doing that you know you're not a good dancer anyway and then my mother God rest her soul lived for, to be 92 she actually called me up because she read this in the paper that I was thinking about it which I really I don't think I ever was. And she said, are you really thinking about going on Dance with the Stars? I said, ah, not really. I said, there. She says, you are a pathetic dancer. Cotillion, <laughs> don't you remember all those years? I said, oh, come on, Mom. Give me, cut me some slack, will you, please? So anyway, Alfonso, it was, it was pretty interesting because um, you had people to, uh, at the final, he was in the finals, I guess, did wow. a video. And I did a video for him. And Charles Barkley did a video for him. And he won the, the, the numbers he told me were off the charts. The people that called in, he says, God, if I got Quayle and Barkley to agree on something, I've got to be a really good guy. So <laughs> I've, I've always taken credit for Alfonso winning all that money on Dancing with the Stars. But he's, 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 he's actually a great guy. And Angela is too. And they got two, two or three wonderful kids. Okay, Damon uh, uh, Ogilvy, Vice President Quayle, I am calling from Houston. Uh, last time we had a bipolar world in the uh, 80s, we had a really great advantage, which was a strong enough economy that we could overspend our adversary. Uh, Mr. Gorbachev recognized that and uh, uh, made the best deal he could by backing out of the race and trying to uh, reduce down the Soviet spending on arms. This time, uh, we seem not to have that capability by ourselves. Is there a way that you would imagine we could uh, create the kind of coalition to provide the world a good cop? And I'm going to presume that China is not that good cop. Uh, by means of either something other than pure armament spending or a uh, group who would actually make a meaningful fraction of their uh, GDPs available along with ours to, to support stronger uh, pushback capability than we can do by ourselves. You know, at the, when the Cold War ended in 1991, I believe the U.S. GDP uh, uh, percentage of world GDP was around 30 or a little over 30 percent. Today, it's in the low 20s, I think. I'm not not certain of those numbers, so don't quote me, but it's gone down considerably as a percentage. Uh, <clears throat> look, China is going to pass us or already has passed us in GDP. They're going to, if they haven't, it's going to happen in the next, the next couple of years. 
So, you know, we'll continue to be a, an economic powerhouse, but so will they. And that's the huge difference, as you pointed out, between China and Russia. Uh, Russia was a third world country when it came to, to the economy. Um, Gorbachev realized this. He tried to reform it. Uh, he tried to introduce you know, liberalizations uh, into his country, called it perestroika, and it didn't work. Um, but this is after he had all these you know, failed leaders. Two or three of them died very quickly when he's in office. And the Politburo switched, uh, went to Gorbachev, who was a reformer. And then Gorbachev in Russian history today is not well regarded because he's the one that supposedly lost the, the, the Soviet Union. Um, but as we look at China, the only way we're going to be able to deal, deal with that is through alliances. Um, you've got to have alliances in the Pacific. And, and maybe, maybe someday that we might have an alliance with Russia. Who knows? Uh, Russia and China don't necessarily get along. Uh, and I also look at a, a stronger alliance with India, uh, because India is a huge country. Uh, the population is bigger than China. The GDP is not, but it's a huge, uh, huge country. Uh, and they have a fairly robust uh, military. So it's going to come from collective alliances. That's why alliances do matter. That's why staying engaged in the world is important. Uh, the retrenchment, I don't like. Uh, I don't like it in this administration. I didn't like it in the previous administration. Um, but the reason they, they, that's happening to some extent is because we've had these basic, you know, failed uh, interventions in Afghanistan and Iraq have proven not to be what they, we thought they were going to be. And the, the people at home, the American people, are just tired. They don't want to be the world policemen. They don't want it to you know, be you know, seen around doing everything around the globe. They want to stay more at home. Well, our own security is just dependent on what the world looks like. So it's really, we're going to have to get a lot smarter uh, in alliances. And that's going to take leadership. It's going to have to take an understanding of how important alliances are and how meaningful they can be. Uh, otherwise, we just can't do it alone, and, and China will be, you know, have a much freer hand in doing some nefarious things. Thank you. If I can, inter if I can interject a, qu a, a question as a moderator, uh, this probably isn't totally appropriate, but I, but um, uh, I'm curious on talking about alliances, about your your comments on the on the WHO issue that uh, and 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 President Trump's. Uh, um, antagonism toward it is that justified or not no i i mean he should try to reform it but he's just basically withheld the appointments to it um and so therefore i, I think they lack a uh, a quorum i think they're, they're, at least they're not functioning as they as they should because i think there's three at least three appointments that, that we have look i think that there's a you know there's a lot of questions that can be raised about these international institutions um you know the international criminal justice uh forum is one and we i don't even think we're a member of that uh we get criticized for it but you're, you're really surrendering a lot of sovereignty on that but you have to realize that at the height of globalism there was basically to some extent that some people wanted to surrender not surrender that's too strong a word to have sovereignty taken over to some extent by some of these international institutions um you know, but we've used these international institutions very well. Like the United Nations was very helpful to us uh, in, in getting support for uh, going after Saddam Hussein. 
Uh, there are a lot of things the United Nations uh, they do that I don't like, but you, you've got to learn to, to deal with it. But now we're retreating from it. So this whole retrenchment is, it could be, you know, hopefully it will stop and we'll get some sort of sensibility uh, in, in looking at the alliances and making its international institutions more reflective of some of the needs of the people around the globe. Because it did become, it is somewhat elitist, let's face facts. You know, they hop around their planes and they oh, fly wow. all over everywhere and they talk, you know, literally talk down to people. It didn't work. And as I said, it's, you know, Brexit started it and then Trump sort of accelerated. And now we've got the rise of nationalism all over the world. Did I see, uh, did I see Mike Gritzkit? I, I think, am I unmuted finally? Yeah, you're all right. Yes, go ahead. <laughs> okay. Uh, first, it's nice to see you again, Mr. Vice President. It's been a long time. Uh, I, I want to correct one thing. I mentioned your golf before, and it happens to be excellent. Not, not it was sounded mediocre in the, in the introduction. So I wanted to correct that. Well, um, that was a tough judge. <laughs> the the other thing is uh, a company that I advise has just moved their manufacturing to Mexico from China. So it's exactly what you were saying is happening, which is very true. Um, the question that I have really relates to, I know how often you are in Japan and what you've done there. How's the relationship and what's happening between Japan and China now? Well, Abe is also a nationalist uh, leader, uh, and we know Xi Jinping is a very uh, strong leader. The relationship between Japan and, and China uh, has never been a good one. Um, Japan, which is a strong strategic ally of ours, we, we have a number of treaties with them that uh, will protect them in any kind of an attack or any, anything of that sort. But the relationship between the two, uh, it's not healthy. Now, having said that, and I'd say this privately, you know, it's, it's not bad for us to have a little competition between Japan and, and China. Um, you know, you don't want hostilities. But they have in the East China Sea, um, and they've had a couple incidents. We just don't get much publicity over here because we're involved in, in other things. Um, but they have had some incidents and uh, in some island disputes with China and, and Japan. <clears throat> and China basically has disputes with all of its neighbors on these, on these islands and these territories. They got it with Japan. They got it with Taiwan. They got it with South Korea. They got it with Vietnam, the Philippines. Yeah, you, Australia, you, 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 you name it. But I, I think the, the situation in Japan, <clears throat> uh, it's, I think it's healthy competition. Uh, but, but Abe and uh, Xi Jinping are never really going to get along. Surprisingly, though, there, there's a lot of Chinese that still come tourists and people that still come to Japan. And there's a lot of Japanese that, that, that go to, uh, to China. But, and you probably know this because you're a student of this part of the world, that the Japanese are now actually paying companies to extricate themselves from China and come back to Japan. Um, that is a very bold stroke. And as they start to, to move back to Japan, China, there could be some sort of retaliation there. I do know that the Japanese are always complaining, business people are always complaining to me that when they go to China, even to this day, they have to apologize for their past indiscretions and aggression against China. So historically, there's some really deep wounds that are still quite evident. Uh, Glenn Lowenstein. 
Mr. Vice President, thank you very much. Um, you've mentioned leadership, I think, nine or 10 times. In fact, I think it was your opening sentence, maybe. So if you imagine that you're a scout looking for the future leaders of America, and you get to look in among governors, congressmen and women and senators, do you see anyone on the horizon that um, you see as a future leader of the country? Oh, boy. Uh, I'm sure I'm sure they're out there. Um, I mean, on our side, <clears throat> people that will be looking at the, the presidential run after Trump, you know, you got obviously Mike Pence, uh, Nikki Haley would be looking at it, Rick Scott of Florida, Tom Cotton will look at it from Arkansas. Um, there's probably a governor or two that I, I'm, I'm missing. On the Democrat side, uh, you'll probably see a lot that ran the last time would, would run again. Uh, I would I would think, you know, if Biden gets elected, then it's probably, you know, eight years down the road. So um, I, and I, I don't follow that side that uh, closely, but there's some there's some younger people, men and women coming up in the Democrat Party. But uh, there's nothing that really, you know, jumps off the, you know, the screen right now. Thank you. Okay, we can turn to uh, uh, Bill Galston to uh, to to close the uh, uh, to close the session. Bill, thanks, Jim. And first of all, Mr. Vice President, it's been an honor uh, to share the past hour with you. And on behalf of the entire organization, uh, let me express our thanks for your willingness to do this. It's been great for all of us. Uh, I have to say, I agree so strongly with the bipartisan mission of no labels uh, that I teamed up with a guy who used to work for you, Bill Crystal, uh, to, uh, to start a bipartisan research center a few years ago. It's one of the better moves I've made, uh, as, as is being part, part of no labels. Uh, I'm a Democrat, but as I was listening to you, particularly on foreign policy, I couldn't find anything to disagree with. Uh, Whoops! I, yeah, and I think you were. You know, I think you were articulating uh, what may become the new common sense uh, of American foreign policy, uh, which, of course, reminds us all uh, that we persevered in the Cold War and eventually came out victorious because it was a bipartisan endeavor for decades. We disagreed about the details, but on the fundamentals the political parties and the country were together. And I think that's gonna be absolutely essential for successful foreign policy in the next long cycle of American history, uh, which is why voices like yours uh, on the Republican side are gonna be really important. Uh, and it's why this group of people who are committed to supporting voices of sanity wherever they may emerge, will also be very important. So uh, our mission aligns with yours, uh, and we hope very much that uh, you'll be an ongoing, an ongoing at least discussion partner in what we're going to do over the next few years, because these next few years, I think, are really going to determine the future course of the country for good or ill. So once again, thank you. Uh, yep. And, uh, I, might just, I might just add, I totally agree with what you just said. And 
you, you look at, you know, running the country, you know, you make serious mistakes in foreign policy, you pay for generations. You make mistakes on domestic and tax policies and things like that, you can correct it with a, in four years or several years down the road. So foreign policy is so important and so overlooked. Yep. And we promise not to overlook it. With that, Jim, I think we're adjourned. Vice President Quayle is concerned by the decline of globalism and the tension growing in the relationship between the U.S. and China. As the world becomes increasingly nationalistic, he thinks the competition between the two countries will also increase. In a similar vein, he expresses a concern about the division that has become normalized in politics, both between the two parties, as well as between the executive and legislative branches. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast. 